Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind, bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the dome to the sky, and let, the, and let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning on the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves of every kind, which with the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the air and to everything that creeps on the earth, 
everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Kurt Schaefer. I'm uh, genuinely humbled to be here with you, and uh, I really wish that each of us could just have a personal conversation tonight. And since that can't happen, I hope you'll always feel like you can drop by and see me in North Hall. Uh, so this is the first session, really, in a whole month of thinking about creation and uh, God's purposes in creation, our place in the creation, God's aims for the creation, our role in those aims. Um, if you're like me and you grew up in a liturgical church, you might miss the practice of having four Bible readings every worship service. And we're going to do that tonight. We're going to have a reading from the Hebrew prophets and a reading from the Psalms and a reading from the Gospels and a reading from the Epistles. And never fear, I've shortened the sermon accordingly. So we can still see Downton Abbey. <laughs> it's going to work. Um, and I'd like it if you'd follow along. So would you open up? Uh, let's start just opening up to Genesis chapter 1. Guess where it is on page 1. Um, now, this is the first in a whole month of thinking about creation, and it seems to me uh, everybody will be waiting until the 900-pound gorilla in the room is addressed, which is issues of faith and science. So I thought I might just start with that and get it over with, and then the rest of the month we can settle down and know that it's been addressed and know that it's been mentioned. Um, if you really want to have to work on faith and science, of course, you should go into economics or uh, psychology, because there you not only have to deal with Darwin and not only the physical uh, implications of Darwinism, but all the emotive and behavioral apparent implications, and a host of other people, Marx and Adam Smith and Comte and Freud and everybody else. Uh, but tonight it's mainly biology and physics. It's probably on our mind after reading Genesis chapter 1. Just two minutes, then we'll move on to other things. Uh, much has been made of the order and sequence of events here in Genesis chapter 1. And we have dear brothers and sisters um, who uh, would be persuaded that you really must stand for that order and sequence or you're fudging on the authority of the scriptures and then, you know, everything just goes, goes bad after that, right? And this is uh, courageous and sincere. I think, though, it's unwise. And ironically, it's unwise because it's not sufficiently biblical. Because if you turn the page to Genesis chapter 2, the same author says, now here's how the creation happened. And how did it happen? It all happened on one day. And of course, people were made before plants who could have taken care of the garden otherwise. It's as if this author has gone out of his way to say my point in these chapters is not about timing, order, and sequence. It's about something else. And we also have uh, some dear brothers and sisters um, who, of course, differ with that first group I mentioned, 
it would approach this passage in this way. God speaks in two elegant books. You read that in some of the Reformed confessions. Special revelation, God's word and God's son. And natural revelation, the things we observe around us. Both revelations are true. They're mutually consistent. Neither lies, neither disagrees with the other. So when scientists report things about the physical creation, their conclusions are a form of natural revelation. God speaking to us just as he does in his written word. This position is courageous and sincere, but also unwise. Ironically, unwise because it's not scientific enough. We do well to take a more scientific attitude towards science. Scientists, at least since the Timaeus of Plato, uh, are humble about their conclusions. They always consider them provisional, likely to be overturned in the future. Just as some embarrassing ideas were once considered cutting-edge science, it's likely that our current cutting-edge science will someday, and probably someday soon, embarrass us. So it would be unwise for any scientist, I think, to consider that scientist's present opinion the equivalent of a revelation from God. I'm going to stop there talking about faith and science, and I will settle into Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins at the beginning and also at the end. Genesis chapter 1 ponders the origin of all created things and also their destiny. These words of Genesis chapter 1, so familiar and yet so strange, have been the church's touchstone, the church's touchstone and the university's scandal because they teach that all created things spring from God's loving initiative. They are all created with his deliberation. They all are meant to be oriented toward his good purposes. There's nothing in creation, there is nothing in creation that's purposeless, nothing that simply exists in a value-free neutral zone. That sort of existence ended with the chaos and darkness in the first three chapters. Since then, every single thing, every single thing has a good moral destiny, and humans are charged to form the world in ways that honor those moral destinies of every single thing. This is God's first great commandment to humanity. Of all the things God could have said, what's the first sentence out of his mouth to humans? Care for the creation. The creation's not to be directed by convenience, not by pleasure, not by expediency, not by technology, not by the dominance of the strong over the weak, not by profit, not by science, not by class struggle, not by realpolitik, but by human submission to the moral direction God intended for every single thing. Now it's true, humans are explicitly given dominion in this passage, which we read. Dominion over the animals, although it's interesting, they're not given dominion over the rest of the creation. If you read that verse, there's not a whiff of any dominion of one gender over another in these verses. But that passage, that phrase about dominion, it's immediately followed by a paragraph about nonviolence. A paragraph that explains dominion does not mean free reign or domination. It means respect for the breath of life. Humans in this text may not, for example, kill an animal as part of dominion. Dominion, it's an inclusio for your literary types. It's a reference back to the first three verses of this passage. Just as God goes out and subdues the chaos at the beginning, now it's as if he hands that responsibility in part to humans. And this dominion is 
continuing to subdue the chaos, continuing to bring moral order to the creation. Now those truths are taught not only in the words of Genesis chapter 1, but also in its genre. What is the genre of Genesis chapter 1? Is it a newspaper account of facts? Is it instead some vague poem? Uh, neither. It's a very common genre, actually, in ancient Near Eastern literature. It's sometimes just called the kingship pattern. That genre runs like this. The great high king observes disorder out on the fringes of his empire. So he rides out and subdues the disorder. Then he comes back and builds a great public monument, usually a temple, to commemorate his good work. Such is the case in Genesis chapter 1. The great king subdues that formless chaos. And then he issues a series of commands for the construction of his commemorative temple. The entire created universe is this temple, this realm in which God is to be praised, glorified, delighted in. And like any temple, when the temple's finished, an image of the God is set up in the temple. This is the world's one and only living God, so that God's image has to be alive. It's humanity. That's what humanity actually is. It's an image of the great high king. Humanity is appointed by him to be priests in this temple he's created, which is the physical creation. We are God's priests. Now, priests in Israel had more responsibilities than just conducting worship services. They were responsible to know God's law and instruct people in God's law. And that law gave priests civil responsibilities, like making sure taxes were collected, making sure the courts were fair, making sure the poor had the means to lead a dignified life. That's all priestly work. This is the sort of priesthood God established for us humans in his temple, the physical creation. So the creation is God's temple. It's to commemorate and extend God's reign. And we humans are the priests in that temple. We're not kings, as if we could do what we want with the temple. We're not autonomous kings, we're just priests. We follow a liturgy that's been prescribed by God. We disclose the creation in accordance with God's good intentions, or we fail in our office as his priests. The other comments will be much shorter. Now we turn to Psalm 24. It's on page 436. I invite you to join me in the responsive reading that's on the screen. <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. For he has founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Those, Those who have clean hands and pure hearts, who do not lift up their souls to what is false, and do not swear deceitfully, they will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from the God of their salvation. Such is the company of those who seek him, who seek the face of God out of Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty and bad. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? 
the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Remember the kingship pattern we just talked about? Genesis chapter 1. Now that you know what it is, do you recognize it when you see it? Like in Psalm 26? It's the same pattern. The first two verses really summarize Genesis chapter 1. The great king rides out, subdues chaos, does a great work. Now that great king in the last paragraphs is riding into his commemorative temple. You're going to have to raise the roof to get this king into that temple. He is that grand. He is that great. It's the kingship pattern. And then there's that middle paragraph, the part you read. It asks the question that's been obvious since Genesis chapter 3, since the point at which humanity gives up its office as priests in God's temple. Is there anybody, anybody at all, who can still ascend this hill and walk into the temple with the great king? Anybody? Anybody got a clean heart, clean hands, pure heart, never lifted their heart up to something that's false? Never let a colleague astray for their own enjoyment. The king's walking by. We're all standing in the crowd, dumbstruck. Anybody want to step forward and say, yep, I'm that person. I'm, I'm the clean-hearted, pure-handed guy. I'm ready to go into the temple and be your priest. We're all standing, asking each other, who's left? Who can stand in this person's holiness? And not one of us can step forward. Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. He was in the world and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only son, who is close to the father's heart, who has made him known. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And we just read from uh, John chapter 1 some excerpts we skipped around. It's on page 863. Uh, at the end of the psalm, we were all standing there in the crowd, dumbstruck, silent in a crowd of bystanders, knowing not one of us could serve any longer as the priest of this God in his temple. When none of us can do what we were meant to do anymore. No one can proceed with the great king into his temple as his priest. 
That would take somebody with clean hands, pure heart, who's never been deceitful, who's never desired what's false. And just now, such a person appears. The very one through whom this creation temple is constructed, the one who is its order, the one who is life itself, has become flesh. He's become part of that created order, right? He's become a physical part of the creation. And as the great high king walks by, only Jesus can tolerate his presence. And then he pauses and comes up to me in the crowd, walks up to you, and says, Go on, follow me. He's headed toward the Father's presence, and his creation power in John chapter 1 enables you to be born new, to be born of God, to be born ready to be a priest with your priesthood restored. This is the glory, the grace, the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ calls you out of the crowd to receive him and believe in his name. And when you do, you're given his unique regenerative power to be born anew, to be born the priest you are meant to be. And that birth is not the end of the gospel. It's the beginning. You were meant to go on into God's presence. You were meant to serve with Jesus as a priest in this creation. You were meant to shape it with Jesus in ways that honor God's intentions and bring him delight. And now the last passage. Oh, you know, I've got one footnote, sorry. Kind of an aside, but it got under my skin. So here we go. Jesus comes as the light of life. It'll only take a minute. Comes as the light of life. He brings abundant life. Now, doesn't all his creation care talk a simple, responsible life. Doesn't that involve having less abundance? And Jesus came to bring abundance. Doesn't involve being poor, being in a poor and backward civilization to care for creation. Don't we have a responsibility to consume? In a sense, a responsibility to exploit the creation in order to have a functioning economy that gives opportunity and abundance. Well, no. It was Marx who thought that, Marx and Malthus who thought that about capitalism, uh, that it requires overconsumption to stay afloat, and they were both wrong. It's like this, if we consume less and save more, that frees resources for innovation and investment. That makes us all pro more productive while wasting fewer resources. That makes us wealthier. Not only that, it allows us to put less strain on the creation. So. Overconsumption harms the creation, and ironically, it also makes us poorer. And now Colossians 1, page 956, the epistle reading. Colossians 1, I'm going to start at 13 to 20. Seems to me the Greek thought starts at verse 13, although your paragraph probably breaks at 15. So Colossians 1.13, Paul writing to the church Colossae. He, Jesus, has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, powers, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He himself is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church, too. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place 
in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Amen. Finally, this passage, the entire creation story laid bare. All things were created by and for the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is, temporarily, this pretender king, this alternative political order, this darkness that denies the light, twists the creation to its own perverted ends. It's a horrid kingdom of death and destruction. And when we're rescued from it, from it we're right to be overjoyed. Our rescue doesn't put us in isolation, right? There is a new political entity, the politics of the true king, in which we're to serve as priests, as God intended us. That entity, that new political entity, that pilot project of the Lord Jesus in being priests in God's temple is called the church. Christ's body, the church, is God's pilot project for shepherding the creation in its right paths. In Jesus' physical created body, God has reconciled everything in creation to himself. And Jesus' disciples are now called his body. We exist in Christ. We serve in God's presence as priests of God's reconciliation of all things to himself. That's why creation care is so fundamentally important for Christians. It's not an optional add-on for some interested people. It's God's first call to humanity. We're reconciled to God in Christ in order to do something, to be in God's presence, the priestly agents of his reconciliation in all the creation.